You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair, and I'm the worship pastor here at Cornerstone. And as always, I'm joined by our lead pastor, Bobby Harrell. Together, we are working through a series of conversations that goes along with our Sunday morning series over the Apostles' Creed that we've been doing in person here at Cornerstone. If you'd like to catch up on any of those messages or any of our previous conversations as we podcast through some of our listener questions and additional content that we can't cover on a Sunday, we'd love for you to find time in your schedule to go back and listen to those. You can find all of our media at cbc.family media, or you can listen to any of our podcasts on any of the major podcast providers. As you listen, if you have any feedback or questions, comments, or things that come up in your own personal study as you follow along, we would love to hear those comments and potentially respond to the things that we think will be most applicable to our listeners. So if you would text those comments to 817-809-3040, we would love to include you in future conversations as we continue these episodes. Okay, so Bobby, first off, before we get into the content of today's episode, we're about halfway through the Apostles' Creed. So I kind of want to read where we are and what we've gone through already and then focus in on the lines that we're specifically going to work through today. So the Apostles' Creed begins like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. And so today, we're going to really specifically focus on the last four lines that I just read, which are the last three of the second stanza and the first of the third. And I'm really excited to get into this conversation because I think Pontius Pilate is a really fascinating character in the Bible. Even on Sunday, you kind of addressed and gave us a character study into who he was. But one thing that I'm still kind of wrestling with personally is knowing whether or not Pilate was a good guy or a bad guy. You know what I mean? It's Absolutely. like, because, you know, I want to put myself in his shoes and I want to think, well, if I was Pilate, surely I wouldn't have condemned Jesus well, to be yeah. crucified. In hindsight, knowing he's the son of God now, I, he didn't have that hindsight. Exactly. Like, I want to believe that if I were Pilate, I would have done things differently, but I don't know what I would have done. Well, when I delivered that sermon and I preach about Pilate, maybe every three years or so, I try to make sure we're telling this story to every generation comes into the church. Yeah new people come into the church, it's very likely that you could be in church your entire life and never hear a message about Pontius Pilate. Yeah. So it's a regular part of the staple of messages that, you know, it's Easter time. You're always going to be dealing with Pontius Pilate. Sure. And of course, preaching through the Apostles' Creed forces us to, he's the only other proper name. Other than the Virgin Mary and Jesus Virgin Christ. Mary, yeah. Yeah, men- yeah. Mentioned in the creed. So, and that is curious in and of itself. So I thought it would be great to take the time. When I preach about Pilate, I try to take an intentional tone of... Almost ambiguity. I want to say ambiguity, but (laughs) hopefully maybe not so ambiguous, but I don't want to come across as super judgmental. Yeah. If you press me and just say, okay, pastor, I'm going to push you in the corner. Good guy or bad guy? Is Pilate a good guy or bad guy? I'm going to say bad guy. Crucified son of God. I mean, yeah. Okay. He doesn't have a favorable spot. He shows up in the Apostles' Creed as a villain. Yeah, But I think if you would take the time to understand when I preach about Pontius Pilate, I'm telling the story of a real person. Mm-hmm. This is my intention when I preach about Pontius Pilate. I'm not trying to say he's a terrible guy or he's really not a terrible guy. What I'm trying to say to the congregation is he's a real guy. He's a guy. Yeah, he is a guy. And maybe we've reduced him to a character in a movie that we've seen somewhere. Well, it's really easy to fictionalize him in our minds because we think of the whole crucifixion account in terms of the narrative and the story and what happened to Jesus. And even like Barabbas is another character in that story that we don't typically think of a backstory. We don't think about his personal studies, the reality of them as human beings. We don't typically think about those things. So when I'm preaching about Pontius Pilate and trying to bring the congregation to an understanding of the dilemma he was in, there is tension rising And the hornet's nest has been stirred up Mm -hmm. between the Pharisees and the Roman government and Jesus and Pilate gets put into a situation. And what I want everybody to realize is this was a man, a real man who lived, a historical figure. He had a wife, 
We don't know if they had any children, but he had a wife who's there with him. Mm -hmm. She's left Rome to go to the frontier, out to the colony, to the edge of the Roman Empire, to see these people that nobody can rule. Yeah. It would almost be like being the wife of an ambassador in modern context to yeah. go to a remote posting and interact with the culture and the people. You know, it's actually interesting that you bring up that element of who they are, because I think Pontius is so much more driven by the political nature of the situation than he is by the religious nature of the situation. hundred percent. We want to look back on it and say, well, how could he not have known that this was the son of God? Right. He's not looking at it through a religious lens. He's looking at it through a political yeah, lens. He's not making a theological judgment about the incarnation yeah. of Jesus Christ as the second person of the Godhead mm -hmm. physically standing in front of him. He's trying to make more of a political decision. Right. Of course, what his job was, was to be the governor. It's a business decision. Yeah. He has a job. He has a wife. He has a career. He has a mandate from, he has a boss and he has to be accountable to people. Mm -hmm. And his job is fairly straightforward. He's been sent to the Middle East to keep the peace, keep the taxes coming in. Don't let these people get out of control. The, the Pax Romana, keep the Roman peace, which was kept through force. Yeah. In other words, there's a military garrison there physically intimidating the people and saying, you will toe the line and not get out of control and right. revolt against the Roman government. But his job is basically to keep the peace and keep the taxes rolling in. And so while I would say, yeah, he's a bad guy. Okay. Yeah, sure. He gave the order to crucify the son of God. He's a bad guy. He should have stood up to these bully Pharisees. Yeah. Yeah. And ruling council in Jerusalem and should have just told them, I'm Rome. You guys go away. This man has done nothing wrong. And you know what I find fascinating is I say he's a bad guy, but I'm very sympathetic, obviously, in the way I project him through yeah. the message. Obviously, you would think I don't have a record of this, but I mean, he's the Roman governor. He has spies. He has informants. His job is to keep the peace. Thousands of people are following Jesus. Surely he's heard the name of Jesus. Oh, uh, absolutely. There's a little moment in this trial when Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod, the puppet Jewish king. He's not even a Jew. He's non-Jewish, but he's the Jewish king the Romans have put in charge. Yeah. And he wore the title king of the Jews, even though he wasn't a Jew. When Jesus is sent over to Herod, you know, Herod says, oh, goody, goody, I've been waiting to meet this guy. And yeah. when Jesus shows up, Herod's like, oh yeah, I have so much heard about you. Do a miracle. You know, right. I just can't wait. Do a magic trick for me. That was kind of Herod's attitude. So I just say that to say that surely Pilate had heard of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus comes with his own reputation. Correct. Yeah. And so part of amazing part of the story that he and Pilate had not had a face-to-face -face confrontation up to this moment. Mm -hmm. And so Pilate surely had heard of him, but I think Pilate representing Rome and the might of Rome and the legions and the power of Rome, the, the crushing weight of Rome. When a peasant rides in on a donkey mm -hmm. to hundreds of cheering peasants, I don't think he's too worked up about it. Yeah. I think he's like, okay, you know, another gnat has landed. I mean, his thinking is, I represent Rome, so a Jewish peasant's playing out some street drama here. No big deal to you me. You can't possibly comprehend the repercussions of this moment and this event. There's no way. There's no way. And so I think that when he had a confrontation with Jesus, as you said earlier, he's not making theological judgments. He's making political statements, political statements, control, yeah. keep the people from rioting and just don't let a bad report get back to Rome that he's not a good governor. I certainly don't think Pilate ever said, hey, one day I'm going to be the key player in the most famous Christian covenant. I'm going to be a part of Christian history forever mm -hmm. with my actions. I think there are some villains in history that have come in the more modern era. You just think of people like an Adolf Hitler or, you know, Osamas or people like that who yeah. definitely are anti-God and anti the Jew and anti that kind of thing. And you could say, well, they're very intentionally evil, trying to kill Jews, kill Christians, crush Christianity, crush the name of Jesus. And I don't think that's what Pilate's motive was. All Pilate's gets pushed into a corner by these severe Jews and says, I don't see a political way out. And the one thing I mentioned in the message that I want to reiterate, most of us had a lifetime to form opinions about Jesus. Yeah. You and I grew up in church. And so we've heard lesson after lesson in Sunday school. We've heard children's church messages and right. youth messages and church messages and youth camp messages. And 
we've read Bibles and we've read books and we've read Bible studies and we've been so bombarded with the story of Jesus. We had a lifetime, uh, literally thousands and thousands of hours to process. Yeah. What exactly do you believe, Jeremy, about Jesus Christ? And you've got to meditate on that and think about that and pray about that and let the Holy Spirit work on your heart and mind about that and in the right time, make a decision mm-hmm. to personally put your faith in Jesus and then make a decision to go public with that and then make a decision to be baptized and right. let the world know that you're a follower of Christ. And it seems to me when I read the story that even the gospel writers are a little sympathetic to Pilate. Mm-hmm. There in no way could see him as a good guy. Right. He represents yeah. Rome. Mm-hmm. And he's not a good guy in their mind, I don't think. But you can see their sympathies because they keep recording the words of Pilate when he says things like, I find no fault in this man. Yeah. This man has done nothing worthy of death. And from that moment, Pilate sought to let Jesus go. Yeah. But the Jews screamed and hollered, and you're no friend of Caesar, and you're a bad governor, and we're going to get you and your wife in big trouble. Yeah, the gospel writers saw his conflict and not only saw it but chose to record his conflict yeah and that's to me what makes him fascinating because i don't see him as a caricature or a character i see him as a real human being yeah and i think oh my goodness if i were the governor of judea and i was raised roman and i was thrust into that moment i might have panicked also yeah and i almost think that's the way i would describe it Pilate's an authoritative, strong figure, but I think he panicked in that moment and said, okay, you crucify him. I'm washing my hands. Yeah. And they're like, no, Mr. Pilate, you forgot. You have the juice gladii, the law of the sword. And you said, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, Rome rules. So only you can kill someone. Mm. It's backfired on you now. Yeah. It totally backfired. And I think maybe there's a whole message right there that we've never even explored. Maybe we could find some meaning in when you try to control every situation with totalitarian authority like that. Yeah. Don't be shocked if it blows up on you and backfires on you. Certainly did on Pontius Pilate. So yeah, bad guy, but you know, let's at least be sympathetic. And of course, let's don't forget, there are a lot of ancient Christians, the Coptic church, the Ethiopian church, the Eastern Orthodox church who celebrate Claudia Procula Saint Day, which is Pilate's wife. Yeah. And they celebrate that out of this horrible bad decision that he made that some good came of this there's I mean, some a, historical a, tradition i mean right? of course we all get saved because of christ's suffering i yeah. mean i don't want to minimize that but i mean in his own family something good came of it yeah and their traditions teach that his wife did mm-hmm. believe on christ and became a follower and you know the truth is we'll never know until we see him yeah whether it's true or not but But we do know that some early believers did hold to this understanding. And I would say people who met Jesus and got to know him for a few minutes typically followed him. Right. Very few people rejected him. I mean, at least the narratives. Of course, they're being told by followers of Christ. Yeah. But even people who are skeptical, Nicodemus would be maybe another good example of that and Joseph and some others who also had incredible political pressure in their careers not to side with Jesus Christ, yeah. ended up siding with Jesus Christ because they really truly got to know him for a few minutes and observed his life. So I think there's definitely hope that they became believers. And I want to think that it's not our prerogative to be able to say whether anyone is beyond God's grace, yeah. no matter what they've done. Let's leave that with God. Those who are listening to this podcast may have some loved ones who were involved in crimes and all sorts of ungodly behavior. I want to leave hope open that somewhere they heard the gospel and let's don't be the arbiter of you're in heaven, you're in hell, you're in heaven, you're in hell. You don't know the answer to that. It's a common New Testament story that people from really terrible backgrounds come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's a fair statement. Then on Sunday, we talked about the next couple of lines. It's interesting. He makes four or five statements about he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, descended to the dead. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the creed writers want you to very much get into your heart and mind. He's really dead. Yeah, there's some really repetitive, repetitive language. Repetitive language, yeah, exactly. But, but yet each phrase says something slightly different. Yep. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Of course, we know that's speaking of the beating, the crucifixion, the mocking, mm-hmm. the all of this was crucified. And we understand that's happened the, yeah, the method of nine in the morning till three in the afternoon, yeah. roughly those hours. And he gave up the ghost and died. And then the creed says he died. Again, the ancient version of the creed uses the word dead. Yeah. He suffered, was crucified dead. Mm-hmm. He was buried. You know, it's kind of worded slightly different, yeah. but the implications are he died, clearly died. 
And I want to just say this, the Romans were experts at this, so you don't need to get involved in, did he just faint or was he really dead? The Romans are experts. These are expert executioners. They, as I said, Sunday, they crucified people down the highway, 130 miles of crosses, one every 40 yards going down the Appian Way. They knew how to do it. Trust me, they were experts. And then on top of it, don't forget what the gospel writers recorded. They broke the legs of the thieves Mm -hmm. to get them off the cross before sundown to make sure they went ahead and suffocated. And they came to Jesus and found him already dead. But just to be sure, that Roman soldier took a spear and thrust it into Jesus' side. So, no, he was dead. Yeah. And the apostles clearly taught he physically, literally, like any other human being would, died. Yeah. Having experienced what he experienced, he was buried. And so it's talking about now Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus do the unthinkable. They've not come out publicly as Christians. They're under the similar kind of pressure that Pilate is. Yeah. There was already one meeting of the Sanhedrin where the high priest was talking and looks around the room and says, none of you have believed, have you? Hmm. And you can just feel the tension in those moments when you realize there are potentially two or more believers in the room, maybe many more yeah. in the room. It records later in the post-Pentecost type era right. when Peter starts preaching in Jerusalem that many of the chief priests and rulers believed. Hmm. We always think of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as two of the elite rulers that believed. The scripture clearly says, though, that many of them came to believe. And I'm sure you can imagine how devastated they, just imagine. So yeah, Pilate bears one type of guilt, but imagine you as the Supreme Court have given Jesus the death sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Those people came to Christ too, many of them, and no doubt they bore incredible guilt for what they had done. Because surely there's always a question of what could I have done? Right. How could I have saved him? Well, and you and I, one of the small groups we lead during the week, we had a robust conversation last week about uh, the death penalty. Yeah. And the weight of that. And can you imagine the weight of sentencing someone to the death penalty and getting it wrong? Finding out later through clear DNA scientific evidence that the man you convicted who's on death row is clearly innocent. Yeah. And can you imagine the weight that you would feel as a jurist? To know that you, let's say they sent someone to death and some years later, someone comes and confesses to the crime mm. and you live with the knowledge that you killed an innocent person. That's incredible. The devastating weight of that. Devastating. So anyway, there's some fascinating stories that are being unfolded here. Yeah. So he was buried. And Joseph and Nicodemus go to Pilate, ask for the body. A man who's crucified is not buried. This goes against the Roman traditions, but Mm -hmm. they wanted to bury him. And Pilate, again, I think goading the religious leaders of the Jews, gave the body to two followers to be buried. And they came to him later and said, Pilate, you did us a favor by crucifying him, but you really hurt us when you took him off the cross. Yeah. Because now everybody's going to say this and that. He didn't die. His disciples stole him. There's going to be myths and legends built here that we'll never be able to control. Pilate says, here, take some Navy SEALs and go make it secure as you think you can. (laughs) And if the language that Pilate uses there is almost as if Pilate is smirking, saying, yeah, I don't think you're going to be able to pull this one off. Good luck. (laughs) Yeah, good good luck luck keeping him in the grave. So we dealt with the road to Emmaus where Jesus now three days later on Sunday morning appears to Cleophas and another, probably Mary, as they're going seven and a half miles to Emmaus from Jerusalem. He walks alongside of them and has a conversation. What I want to explore in the podcast here is a particular phrase that we read Sunday. I didn't have time to explain. Let me just read this from Acts 24 verse 15. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them, verse 16, but they were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus, the guy they've spent, let's say, potentially three years with, devoted followers, has died, been buried. They're totally discouraged. They're walking back home thinking, okay, he's dead. We'll never see, because nobody's expecting a resurrection. That's clear. Yeah. And so Jesus, the resurrected Christ, starts walking beside them, and the scripture says they were kept from recognizing him. Okay, so this is just unbelievable. Well, this raises the question then, what is going on with the resurrection body? If it's Jesus, why don't they recognize that it's Jesus? Yeah. So let me give you the sister story. Mary Magdalene runs down to the garden. Oh, right. Yeah. And the body's gone. The stone is rolled away. There's no one there. She begins to cry. And again, she's not saying, he's risen, he's risen. She's saying, they've stolen the body. 
they desec- somebody broke in here, desecrated the tomb and has stolen his body. And she sees somebody in the garden. She talks to somebody in the garden. And the Bible says, supposing him to be the gardener, Mary begins a conversation and says, hey, there was a guy buried here, but the grave is desecrated and open. They've taken my master's body. Do you know where they, tell me what you saw. You know, did you see two guys sneak in here with a cart and grab the body and a crowbar, brought the door and get the body and cart it away? I want to know, what did you see? She didn't even recognize she was talking to Jesus. Yeah. So what do you think is happening here? Do you think he was disguised in some way or their eyes were clouded or just said they couldn't even fathom the possibility of it so they didn't even hold it as a possibility i mean i've heard this preached to me in a lot of different ways but none are really a satisfactory answer i think you said two very viable options is this something about the resurrection body or is this something about our eyes yeah okay because when he's sitting with them at the table in Emmaus, and he begins to break. Remember, he's the guest, but suddenly he acts like he owns the house and he starts breaking the bread and starts serving them dinner and yeah. starts telling them all about the scriptures and the duties of the host. Yeah, he suddenly yeah. becomes the one in charge. And it says in Luke 24, verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So I just want to say, I see two possibilities here. There may be more, but maybe there's something about the resurrection body. In other words, if I was looking at the resurrected Jeremy, it's so much like Jeremy that once I knew it was you, I'd be like, oh, yes, of course it's him. Of course, yeah. But it's so different that I wouldn't maybe immediately recognize you as Jeremy. You're human, but now you're more human than you ever were. Yeah. The only way I know to describe it is, again, when I go back to my sunglasses analogy that I used on Sunday, Susan bought some of these incredible sunglasses that I know what they do and what light rays they block, but when you put them on at the beach, the water turns to shades of blue that are mind-blowing yeah. and the sky has never been more beautiful and the wind's in your hair and it's like I'm discovering the beach. You gain a six-pack. Instantly. Yeah. I look down and I have abs <laughs> and a tan, and but there's something about those glasses that make the beach better than you've ever seen it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Susan and I were sitting on the beach talking about this on our sabbatical. I think the resurrection is this way. He's going to resurrect the earth mm-hmm. so that the curse is lifted. It's still earth, but something happens. You know, the gospel writers, whether they're using the flourish of the pen, we don't know, but they're talking about the wolf lying down with the lamb and the desert blossoming like a rose and all of these kind of incredible recreation language. Yeah. We know that the body of Jesus appears and disappears at will. He's in Emmaus. They put on their tennis shoes and run back. Well, by the time they get there, he's already there. Poof, appears in the room instantly. While they're talking. So it's flesh and blood. They touch him. He's not a ghost, but there's something about this body that is incorruptible is Paul's language. Wow. It doesn't decay. It doesn't get sick. It does not have corrupting properties. It's like his body. And maybe it has abilities that we don't have right now. Maybe you think your eyes are perfect, but maybe in the resurrected world, The sky is a bluer blue than you've ever known it. Maybe the ocean is a bluer turquoise than you've ever seen it. Maybe the beauty of the mountains are more purple and majestic than you've ever seen them. And we don't truly know the answer. Either the resurrected body itself had some properties that it was so like Jesus, it was unmistakable. Yet there was something different that unless you're really paying attention, you might not have instantly recognized him as Jesus. Yeah. And that's really hard to explain. Yeah, it's really hard to even understand. Or the only other explanation, and you hinted at it, is it possible that the Lord did something so they didn't recognize him immediately? Which their I think there's eyes some were open, real potential to this. eyes were not open. Yeah. They're sitting at dinner and he takes charge and their eyes were opened. And again, you could read that several ways. It could be that when he started acting like the old Jesus, in other words, he took control of the room, broke the bread you know, said the prayer started to be large and in charge. They looked at each other and said, well, it's Jesus. Yeah. You're Jesus. I hear your voice now and I see you for who you are. Maybe that's what it meant by their eyes were opened. Mm-hmm. We don't really know. Yeah. So there's a little mystery here about the resurrection body, but it's a great thing to contemplate. Yeah. You're going to be you. I think you're going to be recognizable as you. You know, there's some scripture you shall know even as you are known. People always ask, well, I know my loved ones in heaven. Sure you will. Why wouldn't you? I think we're going to know each other. We're going to recognize each other. I don't think we're going to be a bunch of strangers walking around. Can you imagine introducing yourself to your own son or your own wife? Oh my or your, goodness. Yeah. That'd be so weird. No, I think we're going to know each other. I just think we're going to be transformed into incorruptible bodies. And none of us know what that 
really means. Yeah. We don't have language for this because we've never experienced a body that is like this glorious body. You know, one line that I think is really funny is the continuation of verse 31 in chapter 24, where it says their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and then he disappeared from their sight. So it's like, so, what a bummer. Yeah. So as they figure out, oh, you're Jesus, poof, he's gone. It's so anticlimactic when you read that. You're like, wait, we just built up to the big moment. Now we expect like light some sparklers and set off some Let's have a celebration. And, Let's and, talk. We have so much to catch hey, up I on. I want to run over there and hug your neck yeah. and welcome you back. But instead they Poof, realize gone. who he is and instantaneously he's gone. And so there has to be something there. There has to be a teaching point there. And the only thing I can come away with as I taught Sunday is that he wanted them to know, even if you can't see me, I'm here. Yeah. And again, they lived with the perspective of, Hey, we can't feed these people. Where's Jesus? There he is. Let's go ask him to fix it. Yeah. Oh, here's a sick person. Let's take him over there to Jesus. He's right over there talking to Simon Peter. Jesus was so near to them physically that they had to adopt a new mentality after the resurrection that he was going to heaven and was sending the Holy Spirit. To empower them now to do things. Correct. Yeah. And that he would be in them and working. He would work through them. Remember his language. You've seen me do all these great things, but greater things than these shall you do. Yeah. And so I'm going to work through you with my spirit. And that must have been an incredible adjustment for them. So then I guess a good follow-up question as we continue down the line of the creed is, you know, we talk about he was crucified, he was buried, he died. Who is ultimately responsible for his death? And the reason why I ask is because, again, I've been in church all of my life and I've heard a lot of twists on this particular sermon to answer this question of, you know, it was the Jews, or it was your sin who nailed him to the cross, or it was Jesus's power on his own volition. I've heard lots of variations of an answer. So I'd love to you just kind of talk about who is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm going to be very gracious to those pastors yeah, because they're my peers. And I am one of those people who have been imprecise with my language. Yeah, And maybe even in this case, the answer, Jeremy, is D, all of the above to some degree. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he died because of sin and because of sinners, and I'm a sinner, so therefore I'm responsible, if you want to say that, my sin. Yeah. Some people would say, well, Adam and Eve did this to us. Listen, so just replace that with Jeremy and Eric or Bobby and Susan, and I have no strange notions that we are any better people than Adam and Eve right. and would have resisted Satan's temptation any better than they fared. They just represent all of humanity. How about that? And religion does what religion does. It self-protects and perpetuates and the Jews did what they thought was right. They're trying to protect the country and their people. Yeah. And they chose to murder someone to do it. From that point, they sought to put Jesus to death, which is a very wicked way to be a religious leader. Mm -hmm. But religion's involved. And of course, the Roman government's involved. But when Peter starts preaching in Acts 2, this is after the resurrection. Jesus has resurrected. Christ has been with them for about 40 days. Acts chapter 1, he ascends. That's what we'll talk about Sunday morning. And Peter's a great example because one who cowers in fear, one who walks away and quits, one who says, you know, I've just blown this so big. I'm the worst guy in the world for denying Christ and cursing and walking away from my apostleship. Peter, now having seen the risen Christ and lived with him for 40 days, is rehabilitated. Let me say it that way. He's back yeah. and he's full of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit empowers the church in Acts 2, it's Simon Peter, the one who was fearful now stands up with incredible boldness because he has seen the risen Christ and he's not afraid anymore. And Christ has had a private meeting with him, according to Paul, recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, and they have got their issues worked out. Peter's asked for forgiveness and Christ has no doubt put his arms around Peter and said, I love you. Yeah. I prepared you for this. I forgive you. Now get back on the horse and ride, you know, let's go. Right. And he gets back into his apostleship and begins to preach in Acts 2. I say all that to say this. I think Peter could give the best answer to your question, who crucified Jesus? Because really the subject matter of the Acts 2 Pentecost sermon is the answer to that question. Okay. And Peter begins to preach in Acts 2. Let me read. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, according to Peter, the Jews handed Jesus over for crucifixion by the deliberate plan of God. Yeah. 
Now, those are Peter's words, and I'm going to say he's got a better grip on this this close to the actual events than you and I do 2,000 years later. Absolutely. Can you imagine the conversations they must have had with Jesus? You know, you told us this was going to happen when we were up north, and we said, no way, Jose, this is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You kept telling us, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, and we kept saying, no, we will not let that happen. We would die for you before we would let people hurt you. Yeah. And you rebuked us. And you told us this was God's will, and now we get it. And I'm sure they had these conversations in those 40 days, so much so that Peter now stands up and addresses his peers, and he says, listen, you were looking for the Messiah. Your fathers were looking for the Messiah. Your grandparents, every generation's been looking for the Messiah. Well, guess what? God finally sends him, and he sends him to your generation. And what do you do with him? You give him to Rome to be crucified. Shame on you. Yeah. How dare you? And Peter adds to that by God's deliberate plan. To which, me, which is very precise language now. To me, that phrase is so incredibly revealing that God's deliberate plan was for a suffering Messiah. Yeah. And this is what no one saw before the crucifixion. They saw Messiah as a victorious king going up to reign. They weren't reading into them the Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, all of these type of passages. Anything that talks about the Messiah being smitten or the shepherd being smitten or the king being smitten or suffering, they never equated that to this victorious Messiah they knew God would send is actually suffering and dying, something like, especially Roman crucifixion, which was the most humiliating thing in the world. It wasn't just death. It was death by humiliation and torture. Do not mess with Rome. Do not make the world a better place. Do not try to fight against the status quo. We will crush you. And so now Peter standing up and say, listen, you are guilty of delivering Jesus up and shame on you, but I want you to know that was God's deliberate plan. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Luke 24 earlier. Jesus even specifically told them that everything would be fulfilled as was written in the law and the prophets. And then it says that he opened their minds to understanding the scriptures. So this was, so this was you, long so, planned. This so, is long awaited. Yeah. So do you imagine Jesus is sitting there saying, hey, let me read Isaiah 53 to you guys. And now think about what just happened in Jerusalem. Do you think he taught it like that lesson or do you just, how do you think that played out when it says he opened their minds and told them the scriptures? I would love to imagine it being a real teaching moment. You know, you guys should have been paying attention all along. Yeah, here's four or five passages you misread. And now as a pastor and, you know, having to correct some of the mistakes I've made publicly, which is always humbling, wouldn't you like to have a couple of hours with Jesus? And just say, oh, Jesus, I'm glad you're here. I'm going to get a pen and paper yeah. quickly. Help to illuminate my mind so I can clearly understand Tell me everything scriptures. I'm getting wrong yeah. so that I can get it right and do honor to my calling, you yeah. know. And so he cleared up their mistaken thinking. Yeah. And maybe that's something I have prayed this. And maybe it's something we need to pray more often as we approach Bible study. Maybe we need to, before we study, get down on our knees and say, God, open my mind, open my heart to the truth. And by your spirit, show me the truth. And if I'm believing anything that's not correct. And accurate to scripture. Yeah. Then please open my mind to the truth. Yeah. So that I wouldn't perpetuate an error. Yeah. So on the topic of things being a little hazy or unclear, I think one element of the creed that is probably one of the most hotly debated because there are huge variances from one version of the creed to the next that say either that Jesus descended to the dead or that he descended to hell. And so the version that we're using is actually one that is rooted in the Anglican church, the church of England. And... It says that he descended to the dead, but there's a whole subset of Christianity and really a long history in the faith that would say he descended to hell, which have very different nuances and meanings. I'd love to talk about what is the realm of the dead? What Did Jesus descend into actual hell? Uh, it's a great question. So I think the reason it shows up in the creed is because it shows up in the Acts 2 sermon preached by Peter, and there is some allusion to it in 1 Peter. Yeah. It's obviously a thing that Peter's thinking about. It's obviously something Peter used linguistically, something he said when he referred to the death, burial, and let me say this a different way. What happened in the three days where Jesus was in the grave? Okay, we know the body's in the grave, but Jesus isn't just the body. He's not the body any more than you and I are just a body. We are embodied spirits, but the spirit can be separated from the body. We know that. Yeah. So Jesus' body goes into the grave. While he was hanging on the cross, he gave up the ghost. In other words, the spirit and body are separated. 
they take the body down and put it in the grave. So maybe the question is tied to what happens when we die. It's really kind of what we're dealing with here. He looks over at the thief a few minutes before he died and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Yeah. Used as a word that we use maybe synonymously with heaven or something like that. But paradise is referring to a place dead people go. Yeah. So what it's referring to. So Peter in this in the Acts 2 sermon is preaching and he's quoting Psalm 16, where David used this language too. You will not abandon me in the realm of the dead. Now, the way you worded the question indicates you've read multiple versions of the Bible. Yeah. So you obviously probably have a KJV type background, ESV, NKJV background, that family. And then today we're using a more modern family of Bibles, NIV, CSB type, CEV Bibles. And the scholarship is about 400 years newer in the modern Bibles. But the answer lies in the word hell. So the old creed says he descended to hell. They got that language right out of the old Bibles because it says in that Acts 2 sermon and in Psalm 16, it says, you will not leave my soul in hell. Yeah. Okay. All the new versions update the language to say the realm of the dead, because hell to us is a confusing term. This is not. Well, I think we all get a very vivid mental image. If you say he descended to hell, we're thinking all, flames of fire. All of us imagine think, you know, eternal damnation and hell and fire and all these things. That is correct. So the word hell, Hades, is the Greek word that you're going to get some of these translations from. It's the Greek word Hades. And Hades doesn't mean a burning lake of fire. Hades means the realm of the dead. And so this is what's difficult. Sometimes Hades is translated as realm of the dead. Sometimes it's translated the grave. Sometimes in the old Bibles, it's translated as the word hell. If anything, the old Bibles are confusing us because they're making us think in a very binary black and white heaven and hell motif. You can say it another way that maybe helps. You know, much of how we get our theology and our thinking about Christmas comes from Christmas cards. Yeah. So you've grown up your whole life getting Christmas cards and sending Christmas cards. And Mm -hmm. when we get to this season, you're very accustomed to wise men standing at a manger. Yeah. And it's like always a very specific style of artwork. I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. There were no wise men at the manger. Right. The wise men didn't show up until he was a couple of years old. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. But you can't talk people out of it. There weren't necessarily three wise men. Correct. They didn't necessarily ride camels. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So the point is, you've seen it on a Christmas card for so long, all your life, that you've now, in your mind, morphed your mental images and your theology to match a Christmas card that was written by somebody who was an artist making $10 an hour making Christmas cards Yeah. with no theological training. They just said, oh... We know in the story there are wise men and there's a manger and there's a star and there's a camel. And so they just put it all together and jumbled the picture up. And we are now confused that the wise men went to the manger. Yeah. That's just not true. Okay. So in the same way, I think our Easter is affected this way. And I think in the same way, the medieval art. So if we were to go to the Louvre in Paris and again, tour the religious art that's in the museum, when we see images of heaven and hell, we see very specific and similar things from medieval artists. They're going to show us puffy white clouds, little naked babies with wings as a depiction for heaven. For hell, they're going to show us, you know, Dante's Inferno. Dante was an Italian writer, wrote around the 1400s, and he wrote a play about hell. I think it's actually a trilogy. It's one in a trilogy of writings wrote about hell, purgatory, and maybe paradise. I don't remember what the third one was. But in Dante's Inferno, he's using words to create pictures in your mind about these burning flames and rings of horror and depths of burning fire and severities of punishment and all of this type of thing. And I think the poet Milton later, the English poet, would do a similar thing where with words, they're telling us about the afterlife, but it doesn't mean it's all theologically correct. But what happened is it influenced the art of Europe so that, for example, Dante's Inferno in 1400s is influencing artists who are painting in the 1400s, the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s. And so you have this great body of art out there where people say, yeah, I saw a painting about heaven once, or I saw a painting about hell once, and here's the image that it conjures up. Yeah. So we don't want to let postcards and paintings direct our theology. When the New Testament encounters the Greek word Hades, it means the realm of the dead. Hades occurs 10 times in the New Testament. 
eight times it's translated as just Hades. They don't even just as Hades. They don't even try to say realm of they don't even define it. Yeah. Because there is really no English word for it. It's called transliterating. They just bring it into English as Hades. But what it means is the afterlife. That's what it really means. The place of the dead, the realm of the dead. So when the creed says Jesus descended into hell, this is the old version of the creed, Mm -hmm. or the new creed says he descended to the realm of the dead, that's exactly correct. What it's saying is he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, and his spirit having been separated from his body, his body was buried in a tomb in Jerusalem, but Jesus, the being, the one you know as Jesus, descended to the Mm -hmm. realm of the dead. So really what it's doing, what the creed is doing is it's taking his death all the way into full completion. So it's saying he suffered, he went through the process of dying, he died, and then he experienced whatever comes after death. So Jeremy, when you and I experience whatever comes after death, listen, you and I just an hour ago came from doing a funeral. Yeah. A standing in the cemetery, weeping with the family. And watching them, you know, you and I stayed a little after the ceremony and watched them lower the casket and dump the dirt, I yeah. mean, and start filling in the grave. His body is where we left it this afternoon in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. But he was a believer. He's not there. And this was something you mentioned even in the service. We have a funeral service to remember the life that was once housed within this body. Correct. Paul said to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Yeah. So you can step out of your body at death and the body is no longer functions. It's broken. And so it'll be put in the grave or cremated or whatever your family wishes. But you are somewhere separated from your body. Okay. You're in the realm of the dead in this day. This is the way they're describing it. You will find that you quickly run out of adjectives and nouns and verbs to describe what happens. in the intermediate period between the time you die and the resurrection. Now, listen, if we want to talk about the resurrection, I can wax eloquent about you're going to rise with an incorruptible body like unto his body. It'll be a glorious body. And I I can tell you all about the resurrection. What no one can really tell you about is the three days Jesus was in the tomb, let's say, that intermediate state. Where was he? Where was he? He was in the realm of the dead. Now, the ancient way of saying that was to use the Greek word Hades. Mm -hmm. He was in Hades. It doesn't mean the burning lake of fire. It means he was in the realm of the dead. He went where dead people go. Now, of course, we've been very conditioned to think of dualistic compartments, good people on the left and bad people on the right, or maybe the bad people are on the left and the good people on the right, depending on what your political persuasion is. (laughs) But there's good people in one container and Bad people in another contained, those who've received Christ over here, those who haven't received Christ over here, people of faith, people who don't have faith, and they're being held awaiting the next steps. And that's some of the language that maybe Jesus is using in Luke 16 about a believer and a non-believer, both who died and they could see each other. They couldn't cross over to where they were. But again, I think that's, I don't know if I want to take all of that literally in that story he's telling, but yeah. there is a realm of the dead. Dead people do go somewhere. Yeah. And it's described as paradise for those who are believers. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Well, that was a response to the thief saying, Lord, I believe who you are. I believe you're the Son of God. You know, I'm seeing the sign. This is the King of the Jews. I'm seeing what happened to you. And listen, I believe. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so it's a great testimony actually right there on the cross. Jesus said, sure, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we're going to go, listen, we're not getting off these crosses. Mm -hmm. That's not what he's saying. He didn't say, yeah, I'm going to deliver you. He said, I'm going to save you and we will go to the place of the saved dead. I'll meet you in Hades in just a little bit. And actually Jesus, it looks like preceded him in death, according to the record. And they met later in Hades. Now, it doesn't mean he went to burn in fire. It means they're being held somewhere. Yeah. From here, everything else I can say about this is conjecture. Okay. <laughs> so this is what's scary. I know what I was taught and I know what I've read, but it has very little proof. It has a whole lot of conjecture wrapped around it. And that is that there is a place where the saved dead go and there is a place where the unsaved dead go. Mm-hmm. One are awaiting their resurrection and one are awaiting their judgment. Also a resurrection, if you would. I have been taught in the past by some of my ancient professors that those were kept in a place called paradise because 
they couldn't pass into heaven yet because their sins were not yet technically paid for. Okay. So, so until Jesus died on the cross and rose again, the substitution hadn't really happened. Yeah, okay. It was theoretical. It was by faith. We're waiting for the son of God to come. Can you imagine Enoch and Noah and Moses? Yeah, where do they go? It's a wonderful they, question. They go somewhere. Now, I was taught they couldn't go to heaven yet because heaven wouldn't be open to them until the son of God had died for their sins. I mean, it had to happen before their sins were paid for. Yeah. So until then, they were kept safe by faith in paradise, awaiting for heaven to be open to them through the blood of Jesus Christ. And one day, Jesus died on the cross. And now I'm going to make reference to two verses. And in the book of 1 Peter, he says in chapter 3, and then again in chapter 4, something that, again, I'm not saying I would take this as incredibly literal right now. I'm just saying this is what I was taught, and I haven't yet sorted it out because no one seems to know the definitive answer. But Peter said this in 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Hmm. So somewhere there were spirits imprisoned and Jesus preached to them. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. These are ancient spirits imprisoned. Yeah. Well, then this is kind of reflected again later in chapter four. Okay. This verse, is the verse six time. where he yes. says, this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. So here's what I was taught. And I just don't know if I can teach this as gospel truth, but here's what I was taught. I was taught as a young pastor that when Peter talks about Jesus descending after his death to preach to the spirits, you know, Paul alludes to this in a way also where Paul says, he that ascended first descended into the lower parts of the earth and he led captivity captive is another mystery verse. Yeah. So let me just see if I can wrap a bow around it and tell you what I was taught. You'll have to figure out what you believe. Here's what I was taught. Jesus dies on the cross. A few minutes later, the thief dies. Yep. They met together in paradise, but guess who else is there? All the old Testament saints, everyone who's died, putting their faith in Jesus Christ, of course, they may not have known him by Jesus Christ. They were putting their faith in God's Messiah who would come. Yeah. They believed that God would send someone to make it right. And by faith, they believed. And they're all kept safe somewhere. Doing what? I don't know. Geographically where? No way to answer no that. No idea. Think another dimension, not really. In Coordinates, your, in your yeah. Ba- in your basement, under right. your feet, 37 feet. Think dimensionally different. But it's referred to as descending to the dead because of the way we bury bodies. I think that's where the language comes from. So I was taught this, that, you know, imagine, put yourself into paradise for a minute. You know, be Abraham or Enoch or David. Listen, with every tick of the clock, people die. Some believers, some not believers. So all day long, you're used to people showing up. Whoop, here comes another one. Whoop, here comes five more. Whoop, here comes another. Here's someone. There's constantly people coming into paradise. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden... A newcomer arrives and says, uh, excuse me, can I have your attention? Are you the people who for the last 4,000 years have been waiting for God to send his promised Messiah, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? John the Baptist is already there, by the way. Isaiah is already there, by the way. All the people who prophesied about him are right there in that, I'm going to say room, but that place. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine Jesus saying to them, some of you have never seen my face, but yet you believed that God would keep his promise. I'm here to let you know that I just died on the cross for your sins and for the sins of the whole world. Your sins have been paid for. And very shortly, I'm going to go rise from the dead and appear to those who are still living so that they will know that it's all signed, sealed, and delivered. What a wonderful nuance on the phrase, your faith will be made sight. Well, Peter says it this way. He preached the gospel to those who were dead. Yeah. What's the gospel? It's the story of Jesus. It's the story about how God did, in fact, keep his promise. Can you imagine believing by faith that God would keep his promise? And then the promise himself shows up and says, hey, let's have a three-day reunion. I did it. And I want to tell you all that I just did. Yeah. And you should have seen their eyes when I raised Lazarus from the dead. And you should have seen what happened when I fed the five. And you should have seen, you know, and he's just telling them, here's the good news. I want to tell you this, my life story in three days. I got to catch everybody up. You knew me as God's Messiah. You knew me as Yahweh, Lord. I am both Lord and Christ. Mm -hmm. They know me as Jesus Christ. 
but it's me and I've paid for your sins. Now, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take you out of here to heaven in just a little bit. I'm going to lead captivity captive. We're going in. But first, I need to go next door and talk to the people who didn't believe. Peter's second reference. Mm -hmm. He preached to the imprisoned spirits who were disobedient. And I have imagined him stepping over there and saying, are you the folks that, uh, can I have your attention, please? (laughs) All of you pharaohs and scoffers and all you people who mocked and scoffed and persecuted God's people and mocked at God. I want you to know that God has kept his promise and he sent the savior of the world and I am him. Yeah. And I just died for the sins of all mankind, but you have rejected that message and you'll have to stay here in jail until the sentencing phase of your trial. And now that's what I was taught about those two verses in Peter. I don't know if that's actually it or not, yeah. but the point the creed is making is even though there's no book in the Bible there's not like a acts of the between the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. There's no book that is that. God has left some of those things ambiguous. He's told us our loved ones are safe. They are kept by the power of God. They're fine. Don't worry about them. They're going to get a new body. You're going to get a new body. The earth's going to get a resurrection. But the creed writers were very clear that the apostles taught. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Yeah, his death was made final. It was real. And wherever dead people go when they die, he went there. And no doubt he wasn't silent. No doubt he ministered to the people there. And I think that's what the language Peter's picking up on when he talks about him proclaiming, preaching to those who were dead. He went where dead people are. And I feel like he told them something. Wake up, pack your bags. We're out of here. We have prepared a place for you until the resurrection. Yeah, I'm going to take you there. And then this section of today's podcast ends with the glorious and victorious line on the third day, he rose again, which that's now what gives us purpose. Yeah. You know, we're able to live a victorious life because Christ proved he was victorious even in death. Knowing the resurrection the way we know it now, we don't really need to know all the little ins and outs of what happened in those three days, or we know our loved ones are safe. We know they're with the Lord, which Paul says is far better than what we've got right now. They are with the Lord, kept safe by him, and they're just waiting for an incorruptible body at the day of resurrection, which will happen at the return of Christ, which is our message on Sunday morning. I can't wait to continue studying. These next few lines of the creed are some of the most theologically rich ones that really speak to the future and speak to what is yet to come and our belief for the things that we still haven't seen yet. And it's such a wonderful study to continue. As you do your own personal study, as you listen to these podcasts and as you engage with us, we'd love to hear your thoughts and your feedback. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. If you would text those to 817-809-3040. We have such a wonderful time with these conversations back and forth, but we have an even better time when we're able to integrate in some of the feedback from our congregation and from our listeners all over the world. So as you listen and as you engage, we hope that your continued feedback can help make these cornerstone conversations as good as they've been.